Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Vancouver School Board says it'll bring back its school liaison program next week. Will it be the same program as the past or ineffective watered-down version? Plus, is the affordability crisis in the community a problem? Not so, say the Irish. And Drake demands peach news from Cactus Club. It could easily have been Earl's Georgia Milestones. Our Friday rap panel weighs in on Vancouver's obsession with West Coast casual dining. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's focus on a city perhaps not known for its Bellinis, but certainly for its Nanaimo bars. This week, Nanaimo became the latest Canadian city to ban natural gas in new construction. What it means for Nanaimo is that natural gas won't be allowed as a primary heating source in home in, in homes and new buildings. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. Leonard, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon. Nice to be on. Yeah, good to have you aboard. Uh, now, I understand this uh, vote that occurred earlier this week, it was a five to four vote. Uh, quite contentious, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. No question it's contentious. You have a, a section in the community who really wants to eliminate the use of fossil fuels entirely. Uh, and you have another uh, section who's saying, you know, look, we understand the need to respond to uh, the climate crisis, but having said that, we want to do it in a way that's more in line with what the province has done. I mean, essentially what council voted to do was to accelerate uh, what the province is telling us we have to do by 2030. That's really what's happened, to put it in simplest terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you comfortable with the, the, the pace that your city is moving at? Well, uh, I'm not going to be cute about this. Once the decision of council is made, I'm the spokesperson for council, but I was one of the four who voted against the acceleration. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's important for North Americans, if you will, Canadians in particular, because we are probably, if not the highest, close to the highest per capita users of energy and consumption of everything in the world uh, because of the nature of our climate and our geography. Um, having said that, uh, there there are limits on leadership. I was certainly satisfied with what the province had decided was reasonable. Uh, one councillor commented that, you know, it was a certain amount of cowardice giving municipalities the option to move ahead faster uh, and the, instead of the province saying you have to do this and dictating it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, dictating an approach as opposed to a carrot uh, isn't always the most effective way to do it. I, I think there are certain incentives we know the building community is responding uh, quite dramatically uh, around the world, for that matter, let alone here in Canada or in Nanaimo, mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that buildings are emitting less carbon. Yeah, and there have been similar bans, I think, in San Francisco, in San Jose, Seattle, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and even here, I think, a city of Maine, Victoria, uh, and Quebec City as well. Toronto was considering one. We've had a similar conversation at the Metro Vancouver level. We've covered it extensively just a few weeks ago. Um, in regards to this particular vote and, and, and where we're headed, um, do you think the will of the public is there? I mean, you know, I can open up the lines. There's going to be a lot of folks calling on this issue. Uh, yeah. Do you think the public's there is there yet? I don't know that the public is, and uh, my question always, when it comes to issues dealing with reducing our carbon footprint, which everybody, well, pretty much everybody gets and understands, is what are the most effective ways of doing it? Uh, certainly, there's no question we've got to move away from fossil fuel, but the generation of electricity uh, requires. A number of innovative measures and you know even our, the province of alberta for heaven's sakes is generating 17 percent of electricity now with wind and solar which is a sort of little known 
bit of information that uh, doesn't get uh, much uh, good news, if you will, or, or coverage. Mm-hmm. But that's reality. Uh, how much more damning can we undertake um, the, the storage of power, the batteries, etc., that are needed for all the cars we're going to use? These are big questions. And I, I guess because of the age I am, and I don't say pull the old man thing out too often, but uh, I, I can well remember in 1971 in geography at Malaspina College, as it then was, not now, Vancouver University. Mm-hmm. You know, the population bomb said there'd be seven, eight billion of us by the, this time, and many of us would be starving. Well, along came the Green Revolution, and, and we produce enough food in the world now to feed everybody. We don't distribute it properly. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm. I don't jump to the crisis uh, barricades as easy as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um- is this inevitable, though, if Nanaimo is one of the cities leading the way that even Metro Vancouver will follow in your mind? Oh, I, th- I think it's it's most likely. And it's probably, uh, you, you've got the uh, District of Saanich as well, which is the mm-hmm. largest, largest municipality in Vancouver. And Nanaimo's second, Victoria's third. Um, you know, essentially, you're coming close to half the population now uh, have councils that have voted uh, to support this. Um, how much difference it's going to make, we will see what impact it has in the construction industry. I mean, I listened to your newscast. We know that housing starts are down. There are some serious concerns about the economy. Uh, you know, the world is a complex place, and nobody can hide from anything anymore. So uh, how that plays out as well is going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, look, if, if you, uh, I, I got to applause, which I told the audience to stop, of course, when I said, look, if you really want to affect climate change, whack up the gas tax by 50 cents a litre. And that drew tremendous applause from the enthusiastic supporters of what council had voted for. But I must tell you, if you said to the average Canadian who's trying to get to work or support their family or, or pay their rent or mortgage payment, that doesn't sound like a very appealing proposition. But it depends how far are we prepared to go uh, by way of government policy um, or government orders, if you will, or requirements to meet the challenges and show leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hit peak oil use, I gather, uh, in I think it was July or August, according to a piece in the Vancouver Sun, as I recall. And 70% of that increase was related to China alone, that increased demand. Mm-hmm. And why? Because China produces all of those goods that we Canadians happily buy because we don't produce them ourselves. So are we, in fact, just sort of exporting our uh, our participation in, in global uh, warming and climate change? Yeah, some have argued that we should uh, impose a tax here in Canada of those goods and services to pay for some of that, uh, that uh, pollution that comes uh, from uh, the GHG emissions that do come from China. And many of those countries do argue, look, uh, if, if you look over the last 200 years, the Western world certainly burned a lot of fossil fuels to build their economies and their standard of living. So, you know, why do right. you want to get in the way of China and India and many other nations? So, and and, and they do have a point. Uh, but what I would argue, and I think many argue, is <laughs> China and India represent 40% of humanity. And it's it's one of the challenges we have is that we want you to live like we do, but we really can't afford to have you live like we do. So no, that's I mean, the conundrum. It, 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 is, it is the moral crisis of our time in some respects to recognize that uh, we are privileged in the largely in the West, and I, 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 you know, fair comment. Europe, North America, we are largely very privileged, and what you said is absolutely true. Uh, but how do you rectify 
that unfairness, if you will, uh, and at the same time maintain a civil society where people aren't rioting, overthrowing governments, or mm-hmm. creating revolutions. Uh, I don't think the average Canadian uh, is prepared to give up too much to play their role in climate change. As I pointed out to my council, um, we Canadians are responsible for 1.6% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions annually. Um, the population of Nile was around 100,000, a little more for the sake of argument, 40 million Canadians. In Nanaimo, we represent 0.004% of the world's emissions, four one-thousandths. Hmm. What we do in Nanaimo is not going to have as big an impact as many would believe, but of course people are passionate about this, and, and, and I understand that. But I think we have to be realistic about what should be achieved, has to be achieved, and what we can actually achieve without tearing society apart or uh, creating divisions or implementing programs that, frankly, will get tossed out by a succeeding government who will come in who's, who won't uh, won't continue with the policy. Mm-hmm. It's, these are challenging times. I mean, on, on one level, I'm excited because I think there are lots of scientists out there and there's lots of innovation and and it's encouraging it because it is dramatic you can't live through a summer like we've lived through or another winter like we've had uh and and not be frightened by what has happened but at the same time um i'm i have somewhat more faith in humanity's ability to meet some pretty dramatic challenges yeah leonard thank you so much for your time today really appreciate it have yourself a wonderful long weekend a pleasure, and I hope everybody's able to catch a ferry to Vancouver Island who wants to get here. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Another <laughs> issue for another day, my friend. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Dropping by right now is our contributor, Jerry Mir Judson. How are you? Oh, fantastic. It's Friday. The sun is shining. I have very few complaints. How are you doing, Jazz? I'm doing very good. We're going to talk a little bit about rodeos. Yes, because you and I have something in common. I mean, mm-hmm. we have lots in common, but uh, we both grew up around the rodeo. Yes, you're from Calgary. Of course, I'm from Calgary. Which Yahoo. Is the, the, by, exactly. <laughs> by the, the biggest rodeo uh, in Canada by far. I grew up in the interior in the Caribou uh, town of Williams Lake, mm-hmm. which at one time had the second largest rodeo in Canada. That's so cool. I just learned that today. There you go. And they still have the yearly rodeo. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I grew up going to the rodeo as mm-hmm. a kid. And uh, I know we have, of course, the Clover- Cloverdale Rodeo and uh, here uh, in, in Surrey. I know the, there's one in Langley as well now. But people's perceptions and views of rodeos are changing. Yes. Turns out, because uh, I've always, yeah, as I grew up, obviously, Calgary Stampede's super fun. Mm-hmm. 10-day long hoot nanny with like a rodeo in the middle. And it's it was always on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something to do, something to watch but as i got older i was like mm, i don't know how i feel about that i don't know how i feel they treat those animals so it turns out i'm not alone two-thirds just over two-thirds uh 67 of canadians polled oppose the old rodeo so i chatted with mario kinsenko he's the president of research co who put on uh this study and uh here's some more here's some more chit chat when we started tracking this question, we had about a third of Canadians uh, who were in favor of using animals in rodeos. The level of support was higher in Alberta and in Atlantic Canada. And we see the same situation now in 2023. But the level of support at the national level has dropped by 10 points. Uh, all of the other issues that we track, we don't have fluctuations as dramatic as the one we see with rodeos from year to year. And to me, it's kind of reminiscent of the situation that we went through in the 1990s when it came to fur. You know, it started to trend down. Now we have fewer than 
than 20% of Canadians who believe that it's okay to hunt animals for their fur. So now we have a similar situation happening with rodeos. Yeah, it just raises a lot of questions that I guess you can kind of only speculate about because we don't really have the data. Why was fur the first frivolous thing that we decided, like, hmm, maybe not, whereas we're still okay with these, like, big animals? Maybe because you look at a bull and it's, like, big and frightening and it isn't a cute little fox or something like that. I think it has a lot to do with the type of campaigns that we had in the past. You know, if we go back to the late 80s, early 90s, there were significant campaigns with a lot of star power behind them that were talking about doing something related to fur. And I think that helped a lot of Canadians make up their minds about it. It's not something that is completely universal. You know, when we ask people, should we eat animals? Most of them say, yes, we should. Should we hunt them for meat? Yes, we should. But the numbers are a little bit lower with everything else, particularly trophy hunting. And I think part of what we see with rodeos is there's been a little bit of movement and a little bit of action on some municipality. Uh, Here in BC, we have three municipalities that have banned rodeos. It's not going to happen immediately. I don't think we're going to go from 34% to 7%. uh, But the fact that it dropped for 10 points over the past five years, you start to think that there's something to this and that the level of support for rodeo is definitely trending downward. These sentiments a little bit can correlate with uh, not just for the rodeo stuff, but I know for um, sport hunting stuff, for sure. Uh, These sentiments correlate a little bit with political affiliations. Yes, we do see conservatives a little less supportive of uh, doing away with some of these practices. Uh, We see a little bit of it, particularly when it comes to hunting. Uh, You know, we have basically 14% of Canadians who think it's okay to hunt animals for sport, but it's 20% among conservative voters, a little bit lower with liberals and NDP voters. So part of what we see here is a little bit of resistance from the conservative voter, more than anything because of their libertarian strain. You know, don't tell me what I can or cannot do. If I want to eat animals and hunt animals and I want to wear fur, it's my prerogative and I'm going to continue doing so. The one area where it's quite striking is on killing animals for their fur. The numbers are pretty much the same across the board. Atlantic Canada tends to be more supportive. They've been facing this discussion for decades. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. I was surprised when I saw like the um, Atlantic Canada almost being like a third of people being like, yeah, absolutely rodeos, because that's not what I think of when I think of rodeo country. I think of I think you know, of Baco, I think of Alberta. That didn't surprise me. It's, it's one of those rare moments, you know, we ask about climate change, we ask about uh, energy, we ask about politics and you rarely see Alberta and Atlantic Canada on the same page but it's almost Truly. like each other is returning the favor to the other you know <laughs> Atlantic Canada not. going well you guys support us on the fur thing and we'll be with you on the rodeos and I think it's the same situation happening in Alberta you know those are the two areas that go it's not that I particularly love this but I don't hate it as much as people in Quebec or Ontario or BC. The times they are changing, aren't they? Oh, most certainly, yeah. We uh, look at animals with a little, a little bit of higher regard, for sure. Well, I think back even my time, uh, you know, my early days as a reporter, thinking about you know the, the conversation around the Vancouver Aquarium, mm-hmm. around killer whales, oh, yeah. or even the zoo at, at one point. Remember, yeah. we, had, we had polar bears there in captivity, right? So uh, things are evolving, that's for sure. Even the, Van- the Greater Vancouver Zoo in Aldergrove, I mm-hmm. mean, they... Uh, they uh, have challenges as well. There's lots of protests still in and around that. Uh, although one one would argue the the stampede in Calgary isn't going anywhere. Right? Oh no no no! Our economy and, would go nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> it would go somewhere very <laughs> awful back home if we didn't have the rodeo in but the it, middle. But I would even argue there uh, those who would probably say in that poll, well, I'm not comfortable with rodeos, but I guarantee you they're probably going to parties in and around the rodeo. Oh for sure, propping the rodeo up, sort of tacitly, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. You know, so you say I don't I don't like the rodeo, but I like everything in and around the. Calgary stampede, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw the stampede.
stampede in Williams Lake. It's a little smaller than, than what it was before in regards to size, but still very popular. People still attend it, and Cloverdale is the same thing, right? So it's yeah. a it's an interesting conversation. But you're right. I saw it in at, at the at the aquarium. We all saw it, and I think things are going to continue heading in that direction. That's yeah, for sure. you know, for the better. It's it's good. <laughs> yeah, but a lot, a lot. But I, I I do agree with what Mario says that there's 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 the voter out there saying, look, you're not telling me in a free society where I can where i can go mm-hmm. or what i can eat and all that kind of stuff too mm-hmm. or so whose that, head i can put above my mantle yeah <laughs> i'm breaking any laws at the end of the day there this you is go. true jerry thank you thank you earlier uh this morning i was just going through some uh, news clippings uh from europe and i uh, was looking at some video as well uh and there was a program called ireland am a television program uh, and they were talking about young people and the cost of living. Uh, take a listen to the news anchors, uh, the news hosts there, uh, talking about what they've been hearing in and around from their friends and their acquaintances in regards to the cost of living and its impact on young people. Take a listen. Joanne said, it is very hard to believe that the cost of living crisis is going to become significantly worse from today. It is going to drive more and more young people to emigrate. Yeah, and Mary also tweeted, when is it all going to end? In 10 years, Ireland will have no young people. Everyone will have left this place and I wouldn't blame them. I I swear, every day on Instagram, I'm seeing a new post of, oh, we're off to Australia, we're off to Canada. And it's actually, it's really Mm. sad. It's getting to a point where there there will be no young people left. Yeah, will the last one out turn the lights off? Yeah, yeah. 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 That was from the uh, television program, Ireland uh, AM. So I looked a little deeper into this, and and there is significant challenges uh, in Ireland. Uh, Average rents in Ireland have increased uh, by more than 85% in the past 12 years alone. Uh, 70% of people aged 18 to 24 are now considering moving abroad because they think they would enjoy a better quality of life elsewhere. It's interesting because we keep having that conversation right here in Metro Vancouver and our major cities across Canada. We talk about uh, a livability issue, a, a housing crisis, but yet some folks think this is the place to live. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, cost of living in Ireland is Rory Spillan. He's a CEO and founder of movingtocanada.com. Rory, thank you for joining us today. Great to chat, Jess. So, uh, you know, that is just one very short clip in regards to uh, the broader conversation. What are you hearing about uh, uh, young people uh, in Ireland and uh, and sort of their view on whether or not, you know, they can build a life in Ireland? Um, I suppose the topic is uh, it's very personal to me. I, I immigrated from Ireland in 2008. Um after making a career change after coming to Canada, I actually built a website called Moving to Canada, and I've empowered a lot of uh, Irish people and put a lot of people all over the world to move to Canada. So over the last uh, 10, I suppose, over the last 10 years, then the Irish population in Canada, uh, in, um, in Canada has exploded. So what's actually happening is we're, we're, we have free third-level education in Ireland. We're educating our young people, but we're educating them to immigrate. So more and more young people are coming out of university and they're immigrating within two or three years of uh, going through third-level education. And inevitably, they're, they're opting to actually stay in places like uh, Australia, Canada, and the Middle East, and the UK. What? Why do they wish to leave Ireland? It's a great country. I haven't been there in probably about 13 years. The people are wonderful. A tremendous history and culture. Why do they want to leave? What, what is happening in Ireland? What's driving them away? 
Yeah, well, well we have a strong um, track history in immigration, right? Irish people have been immigrating to uh, Canada in particular since I think it's the early 1800s. We were mm-hmm. immigrating to um, Newfoundland to fish. But in more recent years, if you look at the last 50 years, Ireland has had a, a boom-bust cycle. So we have a history of um, kind of boom-bust cycles. And um, I guess the last great cycle ended with the global financial crisis. It coincided with 2008 when I actually moved to Canada. And I was sitting in Canada and I realized, okay, we're going to have a very high level of immigration again. So I guess the reason why we immigrate, there is a historical reason that we're always curious about other cultures. We have a huge diaspora all over the world. But... I think a lot of people just don't see a lot of opportunity in our country. As in David McWilliams, he's a famous Irish economist. Uh, he recently asked, you know, he described Ireland as a country that is rich, but the people feel poor. Hmm. So we have, you know, we've uh, a growing, we've a growing population right now. We've uh, pr- probably the youngest population in Europe right now. Uh, we've uh, economic or uh, we budget surpluses, but. Uh, people, the the country is kind of stifled by growth issues, right? Our, our infrastructure is uh, very, very poor. Uh, we have a housing crisis similar to Canada. Um, people are just finding that their money isn't going very far. And I think they're realizing when you compare it with the likes of Vancouver, you might be paying similar prices between uh, Vancouver and Dublin, but you get a lot more money for your rent in Vancouver. And um, it's a world-class kind of lifestyle here where in Ireland, we're always battling the weather and we have infrastructure problems. And I think a lot of people just uh, like to change and they like the, um, there's a lot of job opportunities in Canada as well. And it's just uh, the lifestyle is really attractive to young Irish people. So when people call you and reach out to you and they say, look, I want to move to British Columbia, I want to move to Vancouver or Victoria, uh, so t- you're telling them that look, it, it's it's not cheap, but this is still a, a, a great place. Even though we we keep saying we're in a housing crisis, we're an affordability crisis, we have those challenges. They still believe this is still the place to be. Yeah, I guess it's all relative, right? The weather is a big one. As in people in Vancouver complain about the weather, but relative to Ireland, right? I just came back from a month in um, in Ireland in June and. We had a week of sunshine, but uh, then we had three weeks of just up and down weather, and it's it's very frustrating. So, to young Irish people, the, having a four months uh, having four months of sunshine is absolute bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, there's great job opportunities here. Um, I think people like the kind of the go getting kind of proactive kind of culture in North America. So. It's um, it's a really high standard of living for a lot of Irish people. And in spite of the cost, a lot of young Irish people are able to pay that premium, I think, to actually uh, enjoy a good lifestyle. And what's happening now is more and more Irish people are actually opting to stay and raise their family here. So if you went back five, ten years ago, a lot of Irish people would have come here um, you know, when they get married or when they decide to family plan, they would they would opt to leave. But it's amazing, in spite of uh, the affordability crisis in Vancouver now, that a lot of Irish people are saying, "Wait, this is actually a great place to raise a family." Hmm. Um, and you know, 
In regards to just Vancouver itself, there's been a lot of conversation lately about, oh, we have too many international students coming here in the midst of a housing crisis. We are approaching 500,000 immigrants a year in 2025. In the 1990s, it was about 225,000 immigrants that would come to this country. There is, I wouldn't say a backlash, but there is a tremendous amount of concern in regards to how many people are moving here, even though we are an aging society and we need young people. But people are concerned as to the the number of uh, amount of outsiders that are coming here. What 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 would you say to Canadians as someone who is obviously a Canadian here, lives here and has lived here for a while in regards to some of the hesitation that you're seeing out there in the public, whether it be immigrants from Ireland or India or China or the Middle East, wherever it may be, what would you say to Canadians who are a bit concerned at the, at the level of uh, outsiders that are coming? Um, yeah, I think I think this is something we've probably seen coming for a while, right? The student uh, student populations have been growing rapidly over the last five years, right? Um, if you look at that um, study in Canada sector, it's a well-oiled machine. There's a lot of universities, colleges, agencies, conduits making a lot of money off the system, right? So. I think, uh, you know, they're talking about putting in a cap and limiting it. And I think that's fair, right? As in the whole idea, it's trying to get the point that is just right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these students are a great uh, source of cheap labor for um, the Canadian economy. Many of them are staying on as in, you know, we're, we're attracting very highly educated people and we're allowing them to stay in the country. So I think it's getting the balance right. Inevitably, when we've gone through a record interest rate hike cycle, um, people start looking around and when the economy starts to slow, you look at, you know, you look at the aliens next to you and you kind of go, well, things are fine until these people came. So we saw that in 2014 when um, when the Canadian economy kind of slowed down or when oil prices corrected, um, you know, people in Alberta were looking around and saying, wait a minute, we're, we're out of work. Why are these people employed? So that always happens in the best of times, right? It's all these cycles. We say we need, we need immigrant labor. And then when things slow down, you kind of go, well, why are these immigrants here? So I think it's getting the balance right. But um, Canada has been very welcoming. Um, Canada has a very progressive immigration policy. And I think a lot of the big challenge really is making sure that the immigration, um, the immigration market and the labor market are well aligned, right? Because we still have a very high um, or very low unemployment rates in the economy. So, but we'll probably see over the next six months, things will inevitably start to slow after these record interest rate hikes. Yeah. Rory, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much. The Labor Day long weekend is usually the unofficial end of summer, but uh, it'll also bring an official end to a pilot project uh, which allowed booze on Vancouver beaches. After Labor, Labor Day, drinking at uh, Jericho Beach, Spanish Banks, Locarno Beach, Second Beach, Quetzalano Beach, Trout Lake Beach, and New Brighton Beach will once again be illegal. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the pilot project over the last three months is Jazz Verdi. He is a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Mr. Verdi, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what happens next? Uh, I mentioned this to one of our producers that after Labor Day, there's no drinking in a few of our beaches. And, and they're like, what? Why are they ending this? So what happens next <laughs> after this pilot project? Um, that's correct. So there will be no uh, drinking after the, um, the long weekend. Um, we had to wait till staff reports back um, on their findings of the pilot. And we're looking to talk to VPD, the general population, uh, Vancouver Coastal, and the sanitation department on how the pilot went. 
Um, and then once we get the results from that, we can make a decision going for, forward. So the last day officially uh, is Sunday or Monday? It's September 5th. September 5th. Okay, so that'll be yeah. Monday. Uh, yeah. Now, I just want to clarify uh, uh, that alcohol is still allowed in city parks, right? That's right. There's 31 permitted parks, and um, those will be unaffected. Um, and just to clarify, there's parks that are uh, that allow drinking all year round, and then there's some parks um, that allow drinking from July 1st to August 31st. And if people want more details on which parks those are, um, they're all on the city Vancouver City website. Okay. And generally, uh, if you are going to imbibe, it's between 11 a.m. and 9 p.m., right, in those designated areas in the parks? That's correct. Uh, what, you were talking about some of the things that you're going to be looking at. Your sense of things, I'm sure you were out and about this summer uh, on some of the beaches and, and as a park board commissioner. I mean, did it, did it, for you, anecdotally look like things ran well and people were well-behaved? Um, personally, I, I think so. Um, I'm actually the one who brought the uh, motion forward for this project and this pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, Vancouverites are, are pretty responsible. But again, I, I want to wait for that uh, report back um, before we really comment on how we're going to go with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see that you still move forward with it, though? I mean, I, one would assume, I, I generally, if there's been really big news or somebody has done, you know, somebody wasn't following the rules, usually this kind of stuff ends up on the news pretty quick. Overall, mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, beyond some tweaking, we should hopefully, fingers crossed, and I'm not going to hold you to this because you still have to wait for the information, <laughs> but at the end yeah. of the day, I mean, I, I'm going to assume we'll have something similar to this next summer, or hopefully we can make it more permanent over the summer months? Hopefully. Um, generally, I think things are very positive, and um, um, yeah, we want to make the city fun again, um, and and people have been responsible, and things have been positive, so uh, I don't see why not. Are other, do, you, do you know what the rules are with other municipalities or cities uh, in regards to Canada or even along the West Coast? And Are many of them allowing this, uh, uh, and is it year-round? I'm very curious. Um, I don't know too much about other cities. I've lived in Vancouver all my life, but um, I've seen certain pilot, pro- uh, similar pilot projects and, and similar projects that other municipalities have been doing just by visiting some of the beaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't know enough to comment on those. All right. Well, so just to confirm once again, after Labor Day, drinking at Jericho Beach, Spanish Banks, Locarno Beach, Second Beach, Kitsilano Beach, Trout Lake Beach and New Brighton Beach will once again be illegal at this point uh, as uh, as the park board sort of assesses how things went over the last few months. So uh, fingers crossed uh, that we can eventually make this more permanent, that's for sure. Mr. Verdi, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. We're joined now by teacher and author Nick Marino. He is um, the author of a memoir called East Side Story, Growing Up at the PNE. And uh, Nick was on the show a few weeks ago. I said, look, I wanted you to come back because there's so many other stories uh, from that book and just overall just the memories of, of the PNE as well. So I'm really glad he could uh, make some time for us today. Nick, thank you for coming by. Thanks for having me back, Jess. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking during the break uh, and everybody's got PNE stories. And, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, when you and I were talking during the break, is you know I have uh, you know there's nostalgia that I feel about the PNE. You certainly do. You wrote a book about it as, sure. as an East Van kid. Uh, do you think kids today, whether it be East Van kids or Vancouver, it's generally, do you think they're going to have the same nostal- nostalgic feeling about the PNE uh, like you and I have? 
I don't think it'll be quite the same for, for everyone in Vancouver because it's not the cultural hub that it was. So it doesn't have that, that cachet that it did before. But I think for East Van kids that are growing up near there, I think it's going to have that for them because the Peony is a place where they're going to, you know, maybe meet a girl or maybe, you know, uh, win something or, or just get into some trouble, you know, a little bit of trouble there. So mm-hmm. I think that kind of thing will definitely uh, be nostalgic for them in the future. Uh, and Rami, once again, how many peonies did you work? I worked for six summers starting in 1980. Six summers. So you yeah. saw everything from the carnies to the food uh, to, uh, you know, celebrities coming through, people going through the, through the fair. Yeah. So there's lots to talk about. Like, you know, I remember even one summer I worked there, there would be the Miss PNE pageant as well. I had to take Miss PNE around the uh, around the fairgrounds in a golf cart, I remember. Right. But you must have seen a lot of that too, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Actually, it's funny you mentioned Miss PNE because I, I interviewed Miss PNE 1980 her name's Christine Weber, mm-hmm. and um, she had some funny stories. She said that uh, at the time, the president of the Peony, Erwin Swangard, um, would um, made her always wear her crown and sash and walk with him all the time through the Peony, uh, through the Peony grounds, and they'd be flanked by security guards. But she always had to have that on, and that seemed like you know kind of strange. But then she called me back and she said, "Oh yeah, one thing that was kind of weird is I had to go to all the Peony board meetings." And I had to sit next to Erwin Swangard and wear my crown and sash at all the meetings throughout the year. So while they were talking about parking regulations or moving electrical lines, there'd be this 17-year-old in a crown and sash, Miss Peony, uh, next to him. That's commitment. He sort of demanded that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But then when I talked to... um, I interviewed Gloria Makarenko, who was also Miss Peony in 1978. Yeah, yeah. She did not have the same experience at all, so... You know, Times they changed, I yeah. guess. Yes. Well, they changed for the worse. Yeah. Because <laughs> she was before, and then he, and then Christine was in '89. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, one of the things uh, I recall, uh, and my parents would bring us down to Vancouver for for vacation. I grew up in the interior, and uh, and every at the end of every school year, you would always get tickets to the PNE with your report card in the interior. I'm sure uh, kids around uh, British Columbia, uh, but I remember even when driving by. Uh, the PNE and the old Empire Stadium used to be there. And I remember once we were visiting our cousin, just traveling over the bridge to to the North Shore, and I guess somebody scored. It was a uh, Vancouver Whitecap, and the thing just the, just the roar of the crowd. I have that seared in my mind that sound. Yeah, it was just as a small town kid watching and seeing that from afar. It was amazing. That was part of the fun, wasn't it, with the old Empire Stadium there? Yeah. The, I mean, the stadium, I remember at the time, like, I was a giant Whitecaps fan, and it was at the perfect time in 1979 when they won the soccer bowl. I was 12 years old. It was so exciting. Um, but, yeah, that Empire Stadium, people complained about it all the time when it was there because it was, like, only partly covered. Half the people got rained on. The seats were uncomfortable. But there was <laughs> there was a real atmosphere there. It only held 32,000, so it was often, you know, quite full or sold out. Yeah. And um, when I interviewed uh, Bob Leonard who was on the Whitecaps, he told me a, a fun story where his mom was too nervous to watch him and his two brothers play. They played on the Whitecaps. His, his brother Sam and Dan also played. Yeah. So and she only ever went to see them one time play live. But they lived so close to the P&E that she would just sit on her back porch and listen to the cheers from the from the crowd, like you heard when you're driving by with your family. Yeah. She'd hear these uh, loud cheers, and she'd think, okay, it sounds like the Whitecaps scored. And then she'd wait for her boys to come home, because they all lived at home at the time, and they'd let her know if she won or not, if they if they won, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you were mentioning you, you met Bob? Leonard yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, 
like I say, a giant Whitecaps fan. So it was kind of a thrill last week to to meet him at a coffee bar, just actually right down by the P&E and, and, and give him his book. And I actually signed it for him. So now he has my autograph and he has mine. <laughs> yeah, that is great. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, we've talked in the, in the past, the last interview about just writing the book and, and what it means. But going on these tours, not just interviews on shows like this, but like you said, you met Bob Leonarduzzi the other day, you signed a book for him. Many other people you're probably meeting um, that have had some history. What's that been like for you over the, the last two or three months? It's It's been interesting. It's been exciting. I mean, almost every day I get a message from someone I don't know saying how much they love the book and thanking me for writing it. Um, but the thing that's really funny is that everybody seems to have some kind of peony story. Some of them are great. Some of them are not. They think they're good. They're like, I got a story for you. I worked and sold donuts. And then yeah. that's it, right? And I'm like, yeah. again, not a great story. Um, but but a lot of them, uh, like like I say, everybody has some kind of peony story. Like every day I get up and I have to answer stuff on Facebook. I don't have to. I like to. Yeah. About people that have stories for me about it. Um, there was at one point a conversation about moving the peony uh, potentially out to Surrey or deeper into the Fraser Valley. Uh, particularly because of its agricultural roots, and people said, "Look, we got all this land in East Vancouver. We can use it for parks, for housing, all of those types of things." Would it still be the same peony if that ever happened? I don't think it would. You know, it's been there for 113 years now. And actually, you know, there was a time in the 90s where the Vancouver City Council voted to to end the peony, and it was supposed to, everything dismantled. The roller coaster was supposed to be taken down. Yeah. They were going to use parts of it as a, in a display in like a garden. There was a whole plan to get rid of all the buildings, everything there, but somehow that changed, and within five or ten years of, of them doing that, the roller coaster became like a protected thing in the city. Um, so, so I think uh, it, it, I, I love that it's still there. I mean, I was there yesterday, and um, I, I actually I ran into a, an ex-student Oh, and did? he, uh, this this kid named Aiden, and uh, he loved the book. And I just happened to run into him there, and he had the book with him. So I got a picture of me and Aiden together at the peony with the book, and it was kind of a thrill, I think, for both of us yeah. to uh, run into each other there. Um, this book that you've written, do you have another one in you? Because it it, it takes a lot of time, energy, and it's, there's a you know. There's a lot of emotion that goes into writing a book like this because you're going through your own memories, your own history, revisiting things. Uh, do you see yourself writing another one? For sure, yeah. Like I'm, when I talk about this book, I normally talk about it as a peony book, but it's a memoir. So a lot of it is about my life. You know, there, there's a lot of stories about my family, my great grandfather. Um, was murdered in 1914, and when he was murdered, the newspaper said the richest Italian in Vancouver is killed. So I sort of go into that story and see his backstory. So, so like you say, yeah, there's a lot of emotion. I talk about when my mom died when I was 13 years old and those kind of things. So, so yeah, it is a lot of emotion, but it sort of opened up something in me that uh, I really want to continue. So I definitely hope to write more. Wonderful, Nick. Thank you so much for dropping by. I know you got a busy schedule. Really appreciate you making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Jess. When students head back to class in Vancouver next week, it'll be to schools with a renewed police presence. Vancouver School Board yesterday announced their new school liaison program. Now, you may recall the freshly elected ABC Vancouver majority uh, on the district school board voted narrowly in November to reinstate the school, school liaison program after it was cancelled uh, in 2021 by a previous uh, board. Now, the controversial decision to scrap the program had followed a review 
an independent third-party report which found a majority of black and indigenous students did not feel po- uh, feel police in schools helped foster a sense of safety. So they are bringing back the school liaison program. But what will it look like? Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is Preeti Friedkot. She is a Vancouver School Board Vice Chair. And Helen McGregor, uh, she's Vancouver School Board Superintendent. Preeti and Helen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Preeti, let me start with you uh, first and foremost. Uh, when... Uh, Kids go back to school next week. Uh, parents will be dropping them off. When it comes to the school liaison program, what will they see? A lot of staff um, goes into the first day back to school, as, as we all know. And the staff are focused on settling students in the coming days. So uh, all the staff has already been updated and informed about the program. And uh, SLOs will be int- introduced to the school community. Um, staff will invite the students, they will invite the families to connect with the school, and if they have any questions about the program transition, um, you know, we, we're just going to ensure and make sure that they are all supported. Is this the same program as the past school liaison program? So I will start by saying we all have a priority to really ensure that our schools are safe, welcoming, inclusive places for students, um, their families, and for staff. And with that priority in mind, VSB staff have worked very closely with the VPD to work on reimagining the SLO program. The officer's focus is going to be work, uh, to work with us as a community. And they're going to be available to any student or family member for support and guidance. And the other thing they may do is work with teams, student clubs, and support us as school activities. Um, what's different, you asked that question, there's a number of things that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, we heard that through engagement with community students, the Indigenous Education Council, and many communities, that there are some changes they wanted to see. Um, so some of the items that will be different, um, and the DPD can provide you more details, of course, they're going to be wearing informal uniforms, they're going to be having unmarked vehicles and less obvious firearms. Uh, But the other things that we we really think are critical is the staffing for the SLO program. Um, The officers um, come from a wide uh, diversity of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Um, As we know, our schools are very diverse, and that's very important. But the other thing is they've received very specific training to support them in this unique role. When you're in a school every day, um, what that work looks like is important. And we also have committed collectively to do joint training together, which we think is really important. Um, and I will also say if it, more details about the program. Obviously, in a short interview, we can't share all of them with you. But the MOU agreement between the VSB and the VPD is actually posted on the VSB website. And it, it outlines what the agreement is for mm-hmm. the reimagined program. So uh, based on what you're saying, so it's more of a casual look. Uh, police officers will be wearing polo shirts, to my understanding, instead of the full uniforms, drive unmarked cars, and they'll be armed with smaller pistols that are, I guess, more discreet than than what they have carried in regards to firearms um, beforehand. Um, Ms. Friedkot, my question to you here, uh, for parents who do support the school liaison program, is this new program going to be just as effective as the last one? Do you think that that, that this this reimagined program uh, program, as as uh, Helen said, does it lose anything in regards to the safety side of things that parents actually do want to see? Yeah, and we've um, heard from many people. Like we've heard a lot of feedback um, for the from the people who want this program to return to school, and also from uh, we appreciate from 
some of the people who did not have a positive interaction uh, with the police. So with this new program, we are coming with the updated version of the program. So it's not the same as the one before, as Helen mentioned, but it's an excellent step towards creating a safer, more welcoming school while also addressing the concerns that led to the program being cut in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so all the, all the people who had issues with this program, we are incorporating the, that, those uh, concerns into this new, new program. Uh, uh, Ms. Friedcourt, what would you say to some who would say, look, with these changes, and, and there's been talk in the past, the BC Human Rights Commissioner uh, sent a letter to the BC School Trustees Association urging an end to all school liaison programs unless that there was some sort of evidence-based, uh, uh, unless there was an ev evidence-based need. Um, what, would you, what, what would you say to those who say, look, this is, you know, you're watering down this program to deal with a small minority of critics, that this program before did work and it was effective, and parents generally, the majority, do want to see an officer in the schools. They feel better about it. What do you say to the argument that this this program, as it is reimagined now, is watered down compared to what it was uh, in the past? Um, all I can say is, like, the VSB and the VPD staff has been working nearly for over a year mm -hmm. um, on this program. And there there is a lot of changes, as you can see, um, with with the casual look and wearing polo shirts and, you know, unmarked cars and stuff. Um, anything more updates and information about this program will be continued to be provided through the VSB Policy and Governance Committee as well as the VPD channels. So we are continuing to monitor this program uh, throughout. There's going to be more training. Um, I, I know that there is a lot of supporters with this program, and in reality there is, a lot of people who did not have a good relation with the police. We we are gonna um, you know work together to make a positive impact in the schools. And you know when you talked about the program and and a sense of being watered down, I really have to say it's being enhanced based on feedback and and deep conversations between VSB and VPD and based on uh, feedback from folks, and really is reimagined in a positive way. The goal is the same. It is about safe, welcoming, inclusive schools. It's meant to be proactive, um, delivering safety and crime programs, advice, a resource to students and families, enhancing safety in schools, a positive culture. So um, I just think it's very important um, to highlight those pieces. Obviously, it's different. Um, we know it's different. It's purposely different. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, just sharing that. The other thing, um, and you know, the goals are there. It is about safe schools. That has not changed. The foundation of why and the direction from the board to staff mm -hmm. was creating the conditions for that to happen. And the other thing I wanted to say too is communication has been really important to us in all of this. We communicated out we, through school principals to all of the secondary school families and students yesterday afternoon to give them a heads up to let them know about the program coming. Mm -hmm. And if any individuals have any possible concerns about their child, as schools always do, um, we're really encouraging people to reach out and talk to their school communities. It's important. Communication is important when there's a change to a program. And we have leaned in and listened to voices. And I think that's a really important part about this collaboration mm -hmm. uh, leading to this Ms. McGregor, the reason I was asking that question is, look, if there is a vulnerable student potentially being recruited by a gang, would that school liaison officer have the same powers, resources, 
uh, and support, whether from the VPD or from the Vancouver School Board, more importantly, to be able to do the work effectively to make sure that child is protected from recruitment. It, it, it's a difficult job, and I'll be the first to admit that. But we haven't watered it down in any way so that those things that those school liaison officers do, that they're still able to do those very that very important work, especially when you talk about vulnerable kids and recruitment, that they're st- still able to do that. Um, I I can't speak for the individual elements from a police perspective, but what I can say is one of the key pieces of the program is around crime prevention and proactive prevention, being available to students and being being visible in school communities um, and making um, a connection where necessary, a liaison between criminal offenses and the justice system. So in the MOU, it's quite clearly outlined as to all of the uh, purposes of it. And and that presence, the concern about school safety, um, is foundational, I would say, to the program. Preeti Friedkot, Helen McGregor, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we look at Cactus Club, Earl's, Joey's, Milestones. What is our fascination with West Coast casual chain restaurants? And is it time we get serious about term limits for politicians? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halib is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Well, if you've been living under a rock, uh, you would uh, probably not know this, but uh, Drake had two uh, shows this week in Vancouver. And uh, during one of those shows, or right before one of those shows, Drake uh, had one request. Uh, He was staying at the Fairmont Pack Room. He took a video of the uh, Cactus Club across the street and left a message on his Instagram feed. Now, take a listen. Yo, Cactus Club, I'm not going to lie. I came over by you the other day. And um, it didn't go exactly as I wanted it to. I had I had a lot of I was I was really excited to come over there. You know, obviously the fans were uh, showing a lot of love and couldn't really figure out a table for myself over there. But I'm gonna let you know right now, we've been through a lot together. You got 30 minutes, 30 minutes to send four of them peach leans over to my hotel room right now. Them Leanies, them Lena Marie's, them Lena Turners. Peach Leniosky. You know what I need. Dressed up with the red. With the red on the top. And make sure they're frozen too. Don't come with the half melted or put it in a plastic container. I have faith in you. You're going to figure this out. It's my last show in Vancouver. Like, I need the juice up. Like my brother Train would say. Like, I need the juice up. He needs the juice up with those peach leaves. <laughs> so I was just Man. listening to him going, you know, cactus. We got great restaurants, so he chose one of those West Coast casual <laughs> chain restaurants. And you know, Cactus Club, Earl's, Browns, Milestones, Joey's. One could argue it's the same restaurant with a different name. Now, maybe I'm wrong, Leah. Let me come to you first. What do you think uh, is our fascination with these restaurants, or at least obsession? Because they're always busy. People go to them all the time. What is it with our fascination with the cactus? clubs and the joeys and the milestones well first i just want to think of that poor server that had to walk across the street carrying these bellinis <laughs> in a bellini glass but in four inch heels in four inch heels job 
<laughs> I know. Exactly. Like, oh, my God, what if you spilt one? You're out. You're fired. Um, but I, I think, to your point there, I think that, you know, you know what you're going to get when you go to these restaurants. You probably know what you're going to order before you even get there. You know the vibe. I just think that we're all about the Cactus Club, the keg here, Joey, Earl's. Like, those are the go-to for, like, families and for, like, you know, everybody just going out for a drink after work or going out for the night. It just kind of fits every kind of mood. Although, if you have a bunch of screaming kids, it's not always the greatest place to go. But I just think that, like, they're great restaurants for knowing what you're going to get. You're always going to get the same. It's always going to be what you want and why not do it so for me like i i love the cactus club's bellini so i'm on drake's side there they're the best i didn't know you could say peach bellinis in so different ways in so many different right ways. i know I, you know Lee, i've Lee, never Lee, had a bellini so yeah, i've never had one so i don't i don't they're know good lena turner's like, lena marie's Lenny's right. you know you know what the thing about the cactus club and all these restaurants is like generally like i'll go to the cactus club down in south surrey for lunch i'll meet clients for lunch or i'll go for a friend yeah. with lunch all fine. And, you know, like I have like, you know, when I'm feeling like an adult, I'll have the Thai green curry. And when I'm feeling like a child, I'll have the chicken, I'll chicken, have the chicken fingers uh, stripped with the fries yeah. because that's the kind of jackass that I am. But the thing is, I rarely go in the evening. And a, and a couple of about a month ago, we went a group, group of friends. We'd gone to uh, out to something and then we were go afterwards. We we're going to let's stop for a drink on the way home. We'll go to the Cactus Club. And we had a limo. So nobody was drinking, driving rather. So nice. it was all okay. Go into the Cactus Club like 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and it's like, good boom, luck. Boom, 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 the music. <laughs> and I'm like, where did these people come from that I have never seen in my life walking down? It's like it's a, there's at night an entire different group of people come yep. out of the woodwork and are in the Cactus Club. It's like two different restaurants. It's like almost I feel like I needed a like a membership because I was clearly not cool enough to be in there after 9. And they, you know, and which kind of was proven because the fact is they shoved us in the back corner as far away from like where everything was happening as humanly possible. So it's like, you as I painted the, the giant noise. L on my forehead, you know, and was like, can I have, can I have a, like a glass of wine? That would be lovely. I'm sure that they were just like, who is this jackass? But in the daytime, it's like the executive place to go and have a nice yeah. lunch at night. Apparently, it's where you go to hook up. Oh, anything yeah. over 25 is probably considered old <laughs> in the evening. What I found oh interesting was, was the comments. Uh, there are a lot of food snobs out there. They're all looking down and disparaging uh, the fact that Drake, uh, yeah, no, he did go to other restaurants, but disparaging the man for actually using the Cactus Club to actually have some food there. What about and like, why, they, they, why 30 people? minutes? Yeah. Like, why did well, you I guess, put you know, a time limit on I'm sorry, I had a hard time hearing you. That's okay. What are your thoughts on running for re-election in 2026? What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh. That's a... Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? Yes. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. Uh, now, that was earlier this week, and it isn't just an issue when it comes to Republicans. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein comes, uh, is 90 years old 90. and 90 and was hospitalized earlier this month following a trip and a fall at her home in San, uh, San Francisco. Her many absences from uh, Senate 
since the start of, of the year have hampered the majority Democrats' ability to move nominations through the Judiciary Committee. So it is an ongoing issue for Democrats and Republicans. So let me uh, go to you, Leah. Some have said, look, we should have term limits, uh, which basically means that uh, you can run for a set amount of time and then your time is done. The U.S. president has a two-term limit. Basically, you can run mm-hmm. and run for re-election. You get your eight years and you move on. Do you think we should have term limits when it comes to politics, not just in the United States, but um, provincially, federally, and even municipally? I mean, why senator till you die? Like, that just shouldn't be. I mean, when you start to have, like, cognitive issues and, you know, you're, you're, you're not answering questions and you're stumbling, like, why is that okay? Take care of yourself. I mean, you know what politics is like. Like, retire at 70, get out of it, enjoy your life, right? Like, would you want to be in it forever? Oh, God, no. God, no. <laughs> right? And part of it is also a lot of these folks are in very safe riding, so it's uh, it's easy yeah. to yeah. win. Uh, but they you know, know the job. Yeah, and yeah. But my my argument is, look, if if you know, the classic Power. example locally here is uh, Surrey, the last yeah. the civic election. I think the median age, median age in the city that you guys live in, is thirty nine years old, and I think the youngest mm-hmm. candidate for mayor was probably late fifties. Right up to um, uh, like late 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 seventies, <laughs> late seventies, and there's rumors that Doug McCallum may want to run again. So the next time he runs, he'll oh, be in his no, uh, eighty-two no. or something. God, no. No, some would say, it. look, no. some, <laughs> some would say, look, what's no. wrong with a bit? What's wrong with a bit of experience? Maybe it's okay. What do you say to experience that, Sarah? Experience at eighty ninety. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, all bad experiences as far as I'm concerned. It's a bad experience. You know what? Forget it. It's really not about age because then you've got people like Nancy Pelosi down in the States and she's just on mm-hmm. fire and she's like 82, 83, right? Yeah. So she's really what it comes down to is it's cognitive tests. And, you know, not cognitive. every year, maybe every yeah. two years that you're having a cognitive test, an overall health checkup. I mean, term limits, I mean, good luck, because in the United States, I think that they'd have to have like at least two thirds of the Senate and uh, and the House majority vote that in. And that's never going to happen because they're voting against their own. The Supreme Court, too, after, right? Well, and most likely, and because, you know, because it's a, it's, it's, it's basically an amendment, but it also means that they're giving up their cushy job, their, their, you know, the, the, the pension that would be even fatter, the longer they stay there, all that kind of stuff. Right. So, I mean, end of day, the, probably the biggest problem with politics right now, and and people are going to laugh is that the politicians are actually not paid enough. So they should be there for a shorter period of time, but paid more because the thing is, and Jazz, you know this, you can make more in private industry. You are like basically, I mean, you've got, if you, if you look on any of the major politicians like Instagram or Facebook feeds, and it's just disgusting um, what people say. And, you know, I hate you and I hope your family does this and that. I mean, yeah. just the vitriol that comes out. So you're putting up with a whole ton of crap. You're trying to do your best. Um, there's not a real, not a real reason for people that would be good at the job in the private sector mm-hmm. to step up, take a huge pay cut just to be like completely treat, treated like crap. That, that right? is so, the reality, especially in the province here and even federally. I yeah. would say that attracting good people is getting harder and harder and harder in politics. Why would you do it? Yeah, right? why, would, why you do would, it? would you do it? But the but decisions the are massive. Set. But in the private sector, they want you to retire at 65, right? Not all, like, but but I mean, but there's ways to deal with it. Once someone's a legislator making tough decisions, I mean, that's part of the issue is, you know, you, you're making decisions on things like affordability and housing. Mm-hmm. Well, generally, people at that age are, are, are will, well housed, right? You're not yeah. you're yeah. not dealing with a 30-something who's struggling, who's, who's been educated but can't find a rental. Uh, do you really understand the issues of daycare? Uh, and as yeah, one producer... Like, and, uh, do you understand daycare? Yeah. yeah. 
know, like... well, and, I, and I'm going to say too, I mean, you know, the country, like both the United States and Canada, demographics are changing. And as an old white person, I'm going to say that there's probably <laughs> too many old white people running the show and we need to have some younger people, more diversity, a lot more diversity yeah. Um, yeah. that are coming in because they understand the issues. Mm-hmm. And instead of like, you know, the older generation going, well, you know, it was a lot better when I was young. Back in my day. Nothing, because yeah, back in my day, because nothing ever changed and everything yeah. was just perfect. And, you know, these people aren't moving to my country. And this is changing and blah, 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 blah. And get off my lawn. That and kind of crap. Yeah. 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 So you is... have to have your wits about you if you're making all these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, we've run out of time. Leah, Sarah, thank you. <laughs> Welcome back. Have a fantastic weekend, you guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.